Undoubtedly, one of the most important decisions we make in our life is who we're going to spend it with. Before he died, my friend and a great mentor of mine, Pete Gerlach, put our heads together to create this resource to help people choose the right partner at the right time for the right reasons. When I first uploaded this onto YouTube, I was inundated with feedback from people saying things like it included a lifetime of takeaways. So even if you're happily married with the woman or man of your dreams, don't let that deter you from listening to this interview. I'm sure you'll find some great gems of wisdom that are still relevant to you in some way within. Episode 3 of the Be Yourself and Love It podcast is dedicated to the loving memory of Pete Gerlach. Thank you. I have been a professional family systems therapist for 36 years. I just turned 77. I have been on the planet for quite a while. And I have a um, ceaseless interest in human development, relationships, holistic health. I've been practicing as a therapist since 1979. I have worked with hundreds and hundreds of persons and couples and families, and I'm still learning. I'm still doing that over the internet, but I have acquired across time a lot of information about why some families thrive, why some relationships thrive, and in particular, why some marriages thrive or fail. So what I'm glad to join with you, Anthony, today is to pass on just the summary of what I've learned about how to make a wise decision about a primary partnership. Yes, and you've said that in your opinion, there are three primary mistakes that people make when choosing to make a long-term commitment to a partner, and that's that they choose the wrong person for the wrong reason at the wrong time. Could we explore those a little bit further? Thanks. Those are the three factors that I think cause the vast majority of psychological or legal divorces. So, very important thing before when you're about to make a commitment that you make sure that you're making it to the right person because obviously in the first few months of a relationship people feel a lot of infatuation and a lot of emotion and a lot of attraction and they're not really necessarily looking past their emotions to the qualities of the person that they're getting into a relationship with. You mentioned four particular qualities that could suggest that someone was not quite the right person. Could we use those four as a starting point? Yeah, I think there are several that most people are not aware of and don't, don't evaluate a potential partner for. I totally agree with what you just said about the first months of a relationship and infatuation. I think people are responding to neediness, not intellectual appraisal. And in my experience, the single most important factor to consider if you're evaluating choosing a mate is whether or not you yourself are free of psychological wounds and if your beloved partner is also free of psychological wounds. In my experience, people who are wounded from early childhood trauma, what I mean by that is abandonment, neglect, and abuse. That creates psychological wounds. Many people have these wounds and are unaware of them. They strongly influence our physical health, our emotional state, and our relationships. And among the relationships, they strongly affect who we choose as a partner. So the first factor about choosing the right person to commit to is, in my judgment, first an honest assessment. Do I have psychological wounds? And if so, I ought to reduce those before I even think of committing to anybody. If I have I have minimal wounds, or if I've progressed on recovery well enough, then the person that I'm now infatuated with, I better take a look objectively at, is she or he significantly wounded? And if the answer is yes, if, 
if this beloved person is not aware of these wounds, and if not they if they are not committed to reducing these wounds, I would say bright red light. For sure. That's that is a core keystone evaluation for choosing the right person to commit to. A second factor that I think is really, really uh, equally important is do you both know how to problem solve? We covered this in our prior uh, conversation, uh, Anthony and I covered this somewhat on how to communicate and how to problem solve. The biggest thing that I have seen in the hundreds of divorcing and troubled couples that I've worked with over the years is, as recently as this morning, I live in Portland, it's now 10.30 in the morning, I just had a major email five minutes ago from a man in California who's decided to divorce his wife. I've worked with both of them, and what I see is they are people in their 30s, they have young children, they do not know how to problem solve. They both, incidentally, are very psychologically wounded. So my point here is, in addition to evaluating for psychological wounds, it's really important, in my judgment, to ask your beloved partner, tell me, what's your definition of problem solving? How does it compare to my definition? And do we have an equivalent definition? And does it work when we have conflicts? If the answer to any of those questions is no, bright red light. The good news is, if you're not clear on how to problem solve, and many wounded people are not, you can learn how to do this. This is not a showstopper. It does mean you need to do some studying and learn how to communicate effectively and to problem solve. Um, I've been chattering away here quite a while, Anthony, you're courteously listening. Would you like to add anything or ask anything? Well, first I thought that it might be quite good to illustrate the idea of problem solving with an example of how a normal couple might interact if they don't know how to problem solve. And then let's replay the same scenario okay. with a couple that does want to problem solve. Okay, thanks. That's, that's helpful. Um, in my experience, briefly, Effective problem solving between any two people, adult, 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 child, um, starts with the idea that a problem is an unfilled need and needs are simply discomforts. All of us humans are needy all the time. We have discomforts all the time. We try and fill our discomforts or ease them or reduce them all the time. And part of our discomfort comes from relationships. As in, for instance, I would feel better if you would balance the checkbook more regularly. That's what I say. And you say, well, I do that often as I can, but I'm so busy, I sometimes forget. Now, you and I have a problem. I have a need that's not filled. I want to make sure our checks don't bounce. You have a need to get lots of things done and you don't place as much importance on balancing the checkbook as I do. So a healthy couple would say, uh, well, here's what I need. What do you need? And the other person says, well, I need you to share in balancing the checkbook. I don't want the responsibility for the whole thing. And you seem to think that I'm responsible. So I want to change that so you do it sometimes and I do it the other times. So... What's starting to happen in this example is person A says, I have a need, which is to, to feel that the, back, the checkbook's going to balance and you want to balance it. The other person says, my need is I don't want to take the whole responsibility and I want you to share that with me. Healthy problem solving then says, person A and person B say, okay, let's work out a way where, where we can each get our needs met. That is problem solving. An unhealthy couple would approach this, um, they probably wouldn't be talking about it in courtship anyway, this comes later, but if they did, person B would say, I need you to share the responsibility, and person A, because he or she is wounded, says, 
there you go again, trying to put it off on me. This is your responsibility, not mine. You know, come on, face up and do what I say. That is arguing, not problem solving. That's an illustration. An alternative would be for that second person to say, look, I'm not very good at numbers, so I'm not sure if I'm comfortable helping you balance the checks. What I could do is set a time for you to do it, and during that time, you can give me some of your responsibilities or chores, and I could do them while you balance the checkbook. That way I would know that you're that, that is getting done and I would have that peace of mind and also be able to take some work off your hands so we're both happy. Great. Very, very fine illustration. I know that you mentioned that this doesn't necessarily happen during courting, but for me personally, this was one of the ways that I avoided the red lights that you mentioned. When I was dating, a very important thing for me was as soon as a conflict arose or I felt emotionally unbalanced about something that happened, early on in a relationship, I would just tell the girl I was dating how I felt because this was a good opportunity to find out if the person that I was dating would be able to solve problems later on. If you can just say, you know, when you said that last night, I actually felt a bit uncomfortable or when you did this, I didn't like it and explain why and what you needed. That's a really good way to vet a potential romantic partner because either they're going to say, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't know, would you like to talk about it? Or they're going to react defensively, at which point you can say, well, um, I just told you how I felt and it seems to me you're behaving defensively, at which point they could say, yeah, you're, you're right, sorry, calm down, or... They could double down and say, well, you know, you did this and the other week you did that. And you can get very clear information on whether someone's going to be able to solve problems in the long term by early on in the dating process, just mentioning how you feel when something doesn't work out well for you. And maybe you'll save yourself some grief in the long run. What other things could we do to find out whether someone that we were dating might be a good match for us and whether they have the qualities to make our relationship work in the long term? Because as we know, when we get closer to people, their behaviour is more likely to trigger our psychological wounds. Well, a third element in picking the right person, in my biased opinion, besides is this person wounded and are they able and willing to problem-solve effectively to me, or do we, does she and I, or he and I, communicate effectively is the broadest question. A third element that lots of people don't pay much attention to, my opinion, is unfinished grief. I think I've been studying um, bonding and losses and the normal human process of grieving for many, many years. In general, Western society, I think, tries to avoid the subject of grief. Often our parents did not intentionally tell us about grieving or bonding or losses. Many people have the mistaken idea, gee, you grieve when someone dies. That's all. Yes, that's true. And our lives are full of other losses, not just death. And when people are courting each other out of neediness and desire and companionship and so on, uh, it's a good thing to check your partner to say, tell me what you feel about grieving. And the person is likely to say, well, what do you mean? I'm, you know, grieving, yeah, that's fine. Some specific questions that can be useful are, do you think, can you define what healthy grieving is? Many people can't. They don't know. So they'll struggle with that question. If by chance your potential partner says, well, yeah, grieving is going through a natural sequence of mental, emotional, and maybe spiritual processes to finally accepting what your loss is and moving on. That's grieving. And then you can smile and say, right. Great, that's terrific. That's the way I feel. I'm so glad that you're also a fan of Pete Gerlach. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, I mean, that's certainly relevant for me. You're correct in saying that the only type of grief is not just the loss of a loved one. Grief has played a role in my primary relationship because when I entered the relationship, I wasn't over a previous partner and my partner was still grieving the loss of her father after several years. So one thing that was healthy about our relationship is that we could each talk about these things and offer a sensitive ear to one another. For those of us who are still suffering with blocked or incomplete grief, you know, maybe one evening for no reason at all, you suddenly feel a surge of sadness moving upwards from your chest and you don't really know why you're feeling depressed. Maybe you have some unfinished emotional processes. What can we do to faster process or help us resolve old grievances and wounds from the past to make us more emotionally available for our partners in the future? That deserves a whole uh, discussion all by itself. There's a lot that can be done. I'm glad you asked the question. Incidentally, let me add to what you just said. One of the compelling reasons from my perspective that paying attention to grieving well and knowing what your policy, your personal policy is on grieving. Most people don't, don't know how to say what's, well, my policy on grieving is as follows. I'm not going to go into that right now, but something to be aware of. People who are unfinished in grieving major losses from earlier in their lives tend to be obese. They tend to be addicted. They tend to say, I have chronic depression. They have sleep disorders. They have eating disorders. The cause of which is not immediately apparent. But I've found as a therapist over 33 years, 36 years, often those types of conditions go back to major losses in a person's life that they have not grieved well enough. That's the reason I uh, propose that a third thing to evaluate a beloved partner on is, is it possible you have some major losses in your life, not just death? Example, all of us people, say, in our 30s, 40s, and 50s, have lost youth. You can't see it, you can't photograph it, but that's a loss. Many of us gradually lose physical capacities. I used to be able to play tennis, now I can't. That occurs in middle life or later, but it's a major loss and it requires grieving. So there's lots of things that we lose and it happens so gradually, not just like a car wreck, it happens over time. Other things that people lose are trust, respect, self-esteem, any of those things require grieving and repairing. So there's a lot to evaluating a partner for things that she or he may not have grieved yet. Anthony, you asked, what can we do to promote effective grieving in ourselves and perhaps encourage our partner to take a look at grieving? Let me just try and summarize an answer. The first thing in my judgment anyone can do, whether they're courting or not, married or not, the first thing anyone can do is educate themselves in my nonprofit and free website. It's an educational website. I'm not selling anything on it except information. Um, the third of seven self-improvement lessons is an all about grieving. So a specific thing that anyone can do is take a look at lesson three in my website, sfhelp.org, and find out what do you need to know about the process of grief. Once you learn about the process, the next step is to assess yourself. Do I have any symptoms of unfinished grief? There's a worksheet on the website that allows you to evaluate that. If you do have signs or symptoms of unfinished grief, there is also an article with specific suggestions how can you free up incomplete grief 
and complete it. There's lots of information to this topic. It would be off our topic right now to go into great detail on it. Bottom line, I simply want to refer people to Lesson 3, my website. There certainly is a lot of other useful information on the web about grieving. I am not the sole source. However, in my research, in looking at what other people have written about grieving, none, underline none of them, make the connection between psychological wounds and blocked grief. There is a major connection. So that's part of what Lesson 3 is. It will help you understand if I am psychologically wounded, how is that inhibiting my ability to grieve? Thank you, yes, and I think that sadly a lot of us grew up in households where parents might have not known how to deal with unpleasant emotions amongst children and told them to man up or stop crying, not really understanding that they were inhibiting that child's ability to learn to soothe itself from unpleasant emotions. In general, we learn to process our unpleasant emotions by the example of the people around us, especially when we're children. So one way that we can create healthy relationships is to learn the quality of being able to listen to our partner when they're upset, frustrated, anxious, angry, or any unpleasant emotion and simply be able to show them that we understand what we're hearing by putting it in our own words and attaching a feeling word to it. Are you feeling frustrated because X, Y, and Z? That would, in my opinion, create a environment that was healthy for grieving and make sure we don't continue the cycle of stuffing our emotions when actually, if we ever want to complete them, we actually have to experience everything that life gives us to feel, whether it's a positive emotion or an unpleasant one. I agree with you, Anthony, and I would like to add to what you said. Um, many parents are unaware of what their children are feeling. Uh, they're very, the adults are busy, they've got lots of responsibilities, they hustle around trying to make a, 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 an effective, healthy home, and they don't take the time to be aware of their children's facial expression, their children's posture, their silences, their being alone, their crying, their, their anger. So being aware is a priceless gift for adults to give themselves and their children. In addition, a second factor is learning how to empathize. Many Parents, even those who are aware, don't know how to name their own emotions, and they don't know how to name the emotions they think their children are feeling. And even if they can, they lack the ability to, to look at a child and feel, hey, my child is sad. And that if they can't feel the sadness, that means they're going to operate out of their head rather than their heart. That will distort their communication, and it will make it hard for them to listen empathically to their child. So, in addition to the wise words you just said, I would add, it's useful for parents to cultivate awareness as they take the time to be with their kids, and to develop the sense of empathy. That's a whole topic by itself. And each of us have a video on our channel dedicated to learning how to empathize better. Mine is called Can Empathy Be a Learned Skill? Yours is called Are You an Empathic Listener? I have a, an article on my website about it. I think it is in the Lesson 6, and it's simply called How Not to Raise a Bully, the Early Childhood Roots of Empathy. And part of my article is a reprint of a an article that originally got me thinking about this, whose author I can't think of, but it's an excellent article. In any event, the title of my piece and my website is How to Not Raise a Bully, The Early Roots of Empathy. Wonderful. So have you something more to add on choosing the right person? 
One more thing. In addition to evaluate, are they wounded? Can they communicate and problem solve? Are they burdened by unfinished grief? Those are three factors worth evaluating yourself and your partner. A fourth factor is, is the family that this person comes from, where does his or her family fit on a continuum from very dysfunctional to very functional? In order to answer that question, you have to have a clear understanding, well, what is a functional family, meaning holistically healthy? That, again, that deserves a whole interview by itself. That's a big topic. But here's just a flavoring. If you're strongly attracted to a person, and as you get to know something about their ancestors, if you discover several of things like these, yellow light, homelessness, addiction, mental illness, desertion, bankruptcy, crime, murder, those signs in the family tree or the immediate family of your partner suggest that your partner has inherited psychological wounds. They may appear the most wonderfully balanced, happy, intelligent, sensitive person in the world. They may look really, really enticing and wonderful. Most of us wounded people, um, because we live in a society that values health and attractiveness, most of us wounded people become adept early on at disguising our wounds. It's likely that your delicious partner looks healthy holistically. Maybe, maybe not. But if your partner seems to be minimally wounded or not wounded, take a look at their family just as a double check. If their family is significantly dysfunctional, and you have to learn what that means to, to answer it, that, in my judgment, is a bright orange light. Like, whoa, wait a minute, better do some more analyzing here. Well, I could say a great deal more, but that's a fourth factor I would add in choosing the right partner. Right, and if your partner happens to be from a dysfunctional background and is able to say, you know, I've done therapy for X number of years and I got X, Y, and Z out of it, then you actually might have found someone that might end up being very worthy of being in a relationship with because the percentage of people who take self-work very seriously is quite small, sadly. We're trying to do all we can to raise that. And someone who's actually consciously taking the time to try and improve themselves is really a rare find. One way that I think you can really avoid falling into someone who's not likely to want to work on a relationship or work on themselves is ask them about these kinds of things. Ask them about their family background. Ask them about things like psychological wounds. People who are interested in self-development are very interested in talking about their history and what's happened to them. People who get uncomfortable speaking about these topics try and change the subject act like you're being rude for prying into their background before getting into a serious relationship with you, that is a red flag in my opinion. Anyone who's got self-knowledge will actually think that you're doing a wise thing asking those questions and will actually be quite pleased that you're asking the kind of questions that would suggest that you're interested in a relationship that's going to last over the long term and not suddenly degrade as soon as the infatuation goes out the window. I would add to that, you just sparked me um, in realizing, Anthony, that it would also be a positive sign if the person you're interested in evaluated you for these same factors. If they showed interest in you and asked you questions about your mental health, your family background, your view of grieving, you know, how do you problem solve? If they show interest in you, that really is a positive sign in my judgment. If they, as you rightly say, 
if they change the subject or if they're reluctant to talk about it or if they get defensive or put off by your uh, evaluating them, that is a real yellow light, in my opinion. But I agree with everything you just said. So maybe we'll talk about a few more red flags before talking about the right time to commit in a relationship. Do any more red flags pop up in your mind? Together, those four factors are a lot. Incidentally, in my website, in lesson four, which is all about relationships, there is much more information on the ideas that I have already suggested and am about to suggest. So there's a lot of information available to add to what you and I are talking about here. To put it in a different way, what are the immediate signs of wounded individuals? Ah, I'll try and keep this short. There are many. One quick sign is someone who is very uncomfortable having direct, solid, friendly eye contact. Usually that implies low self-esteem. That implies one of the psychological wounds that many of us inherit, which is called excessive shame. So if people have low eye contact, that's not proof, but it's an indicator. Another is excessive defensiveness. If a person is exceptionally sensitive to criticism or implied criticism, and if they react with anger or emotional shutdown, or they flee, they, they walk away, or they run away, or they cut off, that is the major sign of psychological wounds, my opinion. A person who has chronic depression is a major sign. A person who is obese, major sign. A person who has chronic sleep or digestive problems, minor a major sign. A person who has uh, trouble controlling their anger or aggression, major signs of psychological wounds. There are lots of signs. Okay, and I, I would just like to add a couple of things. Make sure that whoever you're dating's actions match their words. Everyone can always have an excuse for anything but you can judge a person by what they do more than what, what they say. If very early on they flake or don't make appointments or commitments and break trust saying I never agreed to that and things like that, then that's a bad sign. And as they say, as it begins, so shall it end. If you have idealized or unrealistic expectations of your partner or relationship, you might want to check out whether you're infatuated and People who are healthy don't need to move too fast. Everything in nature grows gradually. You just have to get a sprig that's a house plant and water it and give it fertile ground to grow and watch it get huge over the course of a year or two. And people who are healthy don't need to rush into everything. Sometimes it just falls into place. But even so, you want to give the relationship time to grow and take pleasure in unwrapping one another little by little, if you feel the tendency or your partner is too eager pushing for marriage or planning for children and pressing for commitments early on, I would say that's a red flag. Or asking question on date number six, will you love me forever? That's um, maybe a little bit too good to be true. I was just going to say on the other end of the spectrum, people who are completely afraid of intimacy and won't bring up problems for fear of losing their partner and save things up and let them spiral out of control, fear of intimacy being also a wound. The other thing that I think is really important to look at is for people who have a victim story, when they talk about their past, every mistake, failure or mishap was someone else's fault or the world at large. I know that some people have bad luck, but People who are responsible for their own life would be able to say, yeah, I should have seen that coming, or yeah, that person, yeah, I, I, that was not a healthy relationship I was in, but at the time I was thinking this, that, and the other, and they would be able to actually identify their role in creating their own situation. Before you get into a serious relationship, make sure you have the same values about bringing up children. Don't get engaged to someone who believes in spanking if you don't believe in spanking. 
that's a conversation that you'd have to talk about and present the evidence and make sure that you weren't getting with a person who might be potentially cruel to children or animals because that's also a bad sight. Here's one more. Let me add to what you said. A useful question to ask people in general or someone that you are strongly attracted to and considering committing with. Um, could you tell me your top five priorities? Wonderful. Many people have never thought of that question or they paid only hazy lip service to it. In my judgment, after 36 years of pondering that question, I'm listening to many, many people struggle with trying to answer the question. Often people will try, will say some version of, well, uh, my kids come first and uh, then my job and uh, my uh, sick mother and then my friend Anthony. Those are my priorities. I rarely hear someone say, my holistic health is my top priority. My second is my committed relationship. My third priority is my children. And everything else comes forth. Many people will recoil from that kind of prioritizing. My advocating that comes from saying, if you do not put your holistic health first, you're likely to stress your primary relationship, other relationships, and harm your kids. I could say a great deal more about that, but that is a useful question to ponder both in yourself and your prospective partner. Fantastic. So how do you know that it's the right time or wrong time to think about getting in a committed relationship? And also, there's a lot to that answering that question, Auntie, sum summarily. In my opinion, the right time to commit is A, when you both have made significant progress on reducing your wounds and continue actively to do that. B, when you both have put in time and effort learning how to communicate effectively and you're willing and able to practice that together. Third, when you have already, uh, when you and your partner each have spent time evaluating, have I any unfinished grieving? And if so, am I actively in the process of freeing up the grief and finishing it? Um, fourth, have you and I each studied what it takes to make a healthy relationship? If we have not yet, it's the wrong time to decide. Those are four of a group of factors that I propose regulate whether it's the right time to commit or the wrong time. And these are processes that are going to have to continue throughout the relationship because you might think that you've got communication down and negotiate boundaries really well, but the next thing, the infatuation goes out and it comes harder then you might move in together and that presents a whole new level of challenges to your communication skills. So it's important that both people in a relationship have good communication skills, if for no other reason than that they can hold one another to the same standards when conflicts arise. Because we all have the potential to lose our temper and it's good to have someone else to say, wait a minute, we've started arguing, not problem solving. Now we need to retool and take a step back or cool down and have this conversation when we're ready to have a productive conversation. Let me add another factor that I forgot. Part of the right time as to when to commit is when each partner is very, very clear on why they want to commit at this time. There are healthy reasons to commit and there are toxic reasons to commit. If two potential partners are unclear on what each of them needs in order to commit, that is too early. They're not ready to commit, in my opinion. Um, and we haven't come to that in our discussion here today. But there are right reasons to commit and wrong reasons. And so 
the right time to commit depends on each person being honest with themselves and the other person, saying, well, here's why I would love to commit with you. Okay, one, two, three, four. Most people are not that rational because they, as you earlier said, Anthony, are often controlled by emotions. Something worth pondering at some length is, are you getting committed out of neediness or something else? And if so, what needs are you trying to fill by committing? Anyway, I don't want to go further with that, but I did want to add that. I would love for us to go further into that. What are the right reasons to commit? <laughs> um, well, shelves of books have been written on that one. Here are some indicators, at least from what I've learned across the years. Um, the foundation to answering the question, Anthony, in my opinion, is to acknowledge that any relationship forms because each person has some needs, some common needs that we all experience, whether we're in love with somebody or just friends or even acquaintances, some common needs that we all seek to fill uh, are companionship, trust, stimulation, affirmation. These are symptoms of needs that people try to fill in various relationships. I need to be accepted by you. I need to be validated by you. I need to have some degree of appropriate touching um, that varies depending on platonic relationships or sensual or sexual relationships. But we all need some degree of touching, usually. If you are afraid of touching, that's a red light. Or if your partner is. So companionship, stimulation, friendship, validation. How about we need support? Those times that we are confused or down or depressed or apathetic or feeling defeated, we need from each other uh, encouragement, acceptance, realistic hope. We also need listening. So there is a cluster. Each, each person has a unique matrix of these needs. There's a whole group of them. But for me, there are healthy reasons of which I'm trying to illustrate here. For instance, the need for companionship. To me, that's a healthy need. By contrast, some unhealthy needs sound like this. I need to commit so I can legitimize having sex with you. I need to commit to you because I'm really tired of the dating scene. I really need to commit to you because my aunt and uncle would finally approve of me. These are types of reasons which are often semi-conscious or unconscious and in my opinion do not create the foundation for a lasting healthy commitment. There are others. I need uh, to have a drinking buddy or a smoking buddy as in weed. That to me might found a friendship, but it's not grounds to have a committed relationship. I need to commit to you in order to get revenge on my ex-partner. Lousy reason to commit. Each person has a matrix of needs, some of which may be healthy and some of which may be unhealthy. The moral of this part of the three-part story here in choosing a mate is you have to know yourself accurately and honestly. If you are wounded, you are very likely to distort your opinion of yourself and you will be unable to clearly realize what you need in trying to commit. <clears throat> the same thing is true of your partner. If she or he is wounded and you say, why are you considering committing with me? The needs that this person will say may not be the real needs because they are distorting reality, which is one of the inherent psychological wounds. In any event, um, 
what I'm proposing is the best thing you can do if you're considering commitment is get as clear as you can on why are you considering commitment? What specific needs are you trying to fill at this time by committing to this person? What needs are you trying to fill? If you can come up with an accurate answer to that, then the companion question is, well, what needs are you trying to fill, my partner? Are you clearly aware of what you need? And if so, what are the needs you're trying to fill? And the third and final question is, now that we each have a clear idea about each other's needs and our own, are our needs healthy or unhealthy? That's a lot. Most people will not sit down and do an analysis like this. And indeed, are those needs compatible? And we hope that if they're healthy, they are. Another variable talking about needs, and you, as you say, are our needs compatible? One way of evaluating that question is, well, now you, you can list your needs, and I can list my needs. How do we prioritize our needs? I have an enormous need for intimacy. Your need for intimacy is number 10 on your list. We are out of sync on that need. In other words, we're unbalanced. I need it more than you need it. That's likely to create some conflict. By itself, that doesn't say don't commit. It does say, let's stay talking about this and see if we can find a middle ground that is realistic for each of us. I think, um, sadly, all too often, people commit for another unhealthy reason, which is simply they don't think they can find someone else. They don't think they have many choices available to them. That wasn't really a question. <laughs> On the point of intimacy, people receive intimacy in different ways. For some people, being touched is very important. Other people hear love when they get given a gift. Other people need a lot of positive words of affirmation from their partner and some people don't take compliments very well but research has shown that even the healthiest people in terms of self-esteem tend to need four to one ratio of positive remarks in a relationship to negative ones if the goodwill in the relationship is to be retained so it's important that when we're in a relationship we don't criticize our partners all the time and we find good moments to choose to do that. What other ways can we be better partners to our beloveds? Well, I don't have anything to add to what we've covered. Fundamentally, you and I have offered a matrix or a framework for evaluating being mutually satisfying partner, whether commit or not. To me, it's perhaps the, the meta point, the point about points, is in evolving a primary relationship with another person. It's good to be aware of the right time, the right person, and the right reasons. The alternative to that is being blissfully unaware and acting on your impulses and that generally in my experience as a therapist working with many families and couples that generally guarantees significant stress in the future for one or both of you and it guarantees tragedy in case you have children from prior unions or from this new union it guarantees they are likely to inherit the psychological wounds that you have. So, all I can re-emphasize in response to your question, Anthony, is pay attention to these three factors. Is my partner the right partner? Do they have the traits of the right partner or not? Is it the right time to choose or should we delay? Are we choosing for for healthy reasons in our mutual opinion or not. Sometimes it's useful, I think, especially if there are prior children involved, 
If somebody is divorced, incidentally, that's a sign, in my judgment, of significant psychological wounds and an inability to communicate. Someone, if you are attracted to someone who is divorced as opposed to widowed, it's very likely that they have wounds and they are unable to communicate well and they probably have unfinished grief. That doesn't mean you can't have a useful, healthy relationship. It does mean you should pay real close attention to these three questions and invite their evaluating the questions with you. Um, so divorce is a real, real strong indicator. If a partner has a prior uh, child or children from another union and you are dating them, another major set of uh, concerns is what do you expect from me relative to raising your child? There's a whole topic about step families which you, Anthony, have expressed good interest in and that deserves a whole interview all by itself. I'm just left to repeat what we've covered in general already. Pay attention to yourself, evaluate these factors, and as Anthony said, give it time, don't rush into it. If either one of you are feeling impulsive and urgent, saying we've got to commit, come on, come on, come on, that by itself is a pulsing red light. Uh, healthy people don't need to do that. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing this time Pete, with myself and with the world and sharing your experience of 77 years pursuing this wonderful journey that we call life and sometimes stressful journey when we don't pay attention to red flags. So one ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure. So let's make sure that we don't fall into any traps by taking wise decisions and vetting our partners and making sure we don't commit before we're ready to do that and for the right reasons. I look forward to continuing our series of interviews and speaking to you again. Thank you very much. I appreciate the chance to join you. All right, that was the late, great Pete Gerlach, sorely missed. If you would like to hear more from him, you can find a lot more of his material on YouTube, including two other interviews conducted by yours truly. If you would like help improving your communication skills, I created a resource on just that, and you can find it at beyourselfandloveit.com forward slash communicate. That's beyourselfandloveit.com forward slash communicate. Until next week, be yourself. Well, don't just be yourself. Be yourself and love it.